Longtime fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as Sue Pullen, and I'm pleased to announce that she's back, fresh off a rebrand and ready to help as Sue Mackey. Sue is a certified mortgage advisor at Fairway Independent Mortgage, an equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs. She has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners. Whether it's purchasing, refinancing, or even a reverse mortgage, Sue will help. Sue's licensed in 36 states now, so reach out and let Sue Mackey it happen for you. The best way to reach her is just give her a call at 520-977-7904 or in an email, spullen at fairwaymc.com. Fairway Independent Mortgage has an MLS number of 2289. Sue Mackey has an MLS number of 206048. That email again, spullen at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. Shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. You are listening to an entertainment program put together by a company called Financial Ineptitude. Anything said on this show is not an endorsement or professional advice. Would you really want to tell a court of law you were suing us because you thought taking financial advice from two idiots on a podcast put out by Financial Ineptitude was a good idea? Really? Clown hats, my face. Right, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the China Shop. Last time on the Optional Experience, we had an open Q&A for Blaine and myself, followed by a field trip that Eric led us into Reddit for some case studies. If you haven't seen those previous episodes, we highly recommend you check them out first. And if you are following along, please feel free to message any of us if you have any questions, comments, or ideas. All our contact info will be in the episode description. And as a reminder to those tuning into the podcast version, we do have a minimally edited version with video so people can see Eric's screen. All those links will be in the show notes. Eric. How have you been, man? You just got back from a big trip to Iceland, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm doing absolutely awesome. Zero complaints. It's good to be back. It's good to be getting settled back in. It's actually funny. That was like one of the few trips. Normally, I get itchy to like come back. Yeah. And that was one of the few trips where like both my wife and I were like, bro, we could we could do like another week here probably. <laughs> well, so, yeah. I'm glad you did come awesome. back. <laughs> uh, Blaine, yeah. I, I hear you were in Europe too. Yes, I went to Italy for a friend's wedding and I actually did my study abroad in Venice. So we, and my husband and I have never been together. So we hit Venice and then we went out on up to, um, ugh, I'm blanking on the name. It's a hard name, but anyway, <laughs> it was in Northern, Northern Italy near Germany. And then we went over to Munich on oh, the nice. night before Oktoberfest started, which was like the excitement was palpable. <laughs> I've not gotten a chance to go to Germany yet. I did get to do a work trip to Italy uh, once. I was up in Udine, which is, I think we flew into Venice. And so I got to check out that Milan. And then I took an overnight train to Klagenfurt in Austria. And I really enjoyed that. Really cool. Really yeah. cool. Well, I'm glad you guys all came back. Uh, oh, it's, any... um, it's Balzano. That's where we Balzano. went. Balzano. Balzano. I, there. I have family in Vicenza. Um, I've got to get up there and go see them at some point, but trying to make that work has been fun. 
<laughs> you guys have any uh, anything new to report to the group here? Uh, anything big coming up? Not I. Yep. yep. All right, then. Well, then what do we have planned for today, then? Maybe just jump right into the discussion. I thought you'd never ask. I am pretty <laughs> stoked for today's session. So we're kind of through a lot of the background, all of the boring shit, if I say so myself. And I'm actually really excited to start looking at some actual examples, working through the art and science, I guess. It's kind of both of trading. So the goal for today, I will share my screen with you guys so that you can follow along with me. Um, so the goal for today is I want to work through the process of identifying options trades and then creating a, an actual flow for us to decide how to put on trades. Because one of the things I think is really important for traders is the ability to make decisions quickly and ideally the correct decisions. It's not that every trade is a rush, but your capacity to flow through a decision cycle efficiently is massive. So the idea behind creating like a quote unquote flow is to offset a lot of the unnecessary friction when it comes to making a decision. So for me, when I'm thinking about adding a, a position, it's a very streamlined approach. There's two ways that that process begins for me. And then based on which way I'm going down that path, that fork to start, it's essentially the same, the same exact thing I do every single time, regardless of what I'm trading. So the idea is it becomes a very systemized process. It's easy for us to follow. The trader will always have the last say, and you'll hear me refer to that quite a few times because this is where we differentiate from the idea of like being able to fully automate a strategy versus creating structure and a flow to offload a lot of the decision process, but it still requires trader input. And again, I've talked to that quite a bit before, and it's because I really don't think we're at a point yet where we can fully automate anything and create success. I've tested, I can't tell you how many AI algorithm bots and all this bullshit literally for YouTube content, but just to explore it, because I am fascinated if we will get to the place that it might create edge, but we're not there. And I think unfortunately for retail traders, we'll literally never be there because it's important to remember like an efficient human decision cycle can get cut down to like 600 milliseconds, which is pretty quick. However, when we're talking about the world of speed and trading, that's where algorithms tend to operate and they operate within those sub timeframes. That's where all the institutions are playing. They, they literally, I have an article I can share with you, I have to find it, but um, there was, a, a, I forgot which institution, what firm did it, but they were investing in undersea cables, right, for data connectivity. And it was like a $300 million investment to take off literally microseconds, like just hmm. tiny bits of time. So the point being is if you're creating an algorithm using your even fiber optic internet, right? That's Google Fiber is supposed to be pretty quick. It, nowhere near, literally right. nowhere near as fast. They're to the point of optimizing their algorithms where they literally build their computers and their data stacks as close to the exchange as they can physically get it to even cut down that time. So the point being is it's an ultra competitive space for those really short term timeframes. And that's because that's where arbitrage lives. Okay. That was a giant, giant rabbit hole.
but I feel like it's important for retail traders to understand the way that this thing works so that we can actually figure out how we can make money and where our world lives. And that's idea for the session today is to walk through how I like to think about finding trades, structuring trades, and then there's going to be an exercise for us to work through together to kind of explore this. And I actually think it's really cool between the both of you because you both are trading very differently, at least as if we last spoke. And I know, Blaine, you're going through your process, whether or not you know, you're actively trading. I know that you put on a couple things. I saw it on Twitter. Um, but the main thing is you generally even previously looked at different timeframes. So mm -hmm. my hope is to still use both of you as kind of models for us to take a look at so that people can kind of see the way that we can build up a structure and a process. So that Perfect. is your orientation. Yes. Do I have any initial questions, comments, concerns? I have a uh, comment. Talk to me. So I have um, two weeks. Uh, it's been three weeks since we talked, but I was in Italy for a week. So I have two weeks of like consistently scalping the open for a set amount of money, which is really good for me. Like that, I really thrive on consistency like that. And I've done that by putting the sell order in and just like not touching the computer. So automating my exit. And mm -hmm. I always, always get in trouble with, I have in my mind, like a set exit point and then the trade works out like it, I'm very consistently can like get the trade to work out. However, mm -hmm. when it gets there, I'm just super greedy about it. And I'm like, well, I, you know, maybe I can get a little more out of this. And it is 10 times out of 10, the trade turns around. I somehow screw it up. And then I just hate myself because like I had the plan and I just didn't get out of the trade. So anyway, mm -hmm. I have two weeks now of consistency by putting in the sell order and it just hits it and I'm done. And then I just shut down the computer and walk away, which is actually a much better mental place than I was last time we were talking. Interesting. I like that. Yeah. 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 I think it's good. I think when I hear you talk about that, admittedly, there are some red flags that pop up just in terms of how emotional of a process that is for you. But uh -huh. I do think it's good that you're creating controls around it. So that makes me happy to hear. Um, but I, if I were in your shoes, I would be very interested to get to the root cause of that just emotional process anyways. Um, I'm listening to a really great book right now called Richer, Wiser, Happier. And it's kind of like a, it's like a Market Wizards style book. And yeah. anyways, one of the things that that book is talking about and that I've seen in all of the literature that I've come across for successful investors and traders is two things. And it's funny because I actually identify with both of them. But one of the first things is that a lot of them are low level Asperger's or some sort of process like that where two things happen. One is we're less emotional. And I really do identify with that. I'm just not a very emotional human being. But then the second thing is the kind of proclivity for like numbers, repeatable process, that kind of thing. Anyways, going back to the original point, when I hear you talk about just your process right now, I think it's really good that there are controls in place. That literally is perfect. But I think I would be really, really interested to get to the root cause of that emotional cycle anyways, because my goal, if I were in your shoes, would be to mitigate that as much as humanly possible slash eliminate almost. Because yeah. to, to your point, 
I think you found a healthy way to work around it. And there's actually a couple ideas I have for you for that anyways. But it it's one of those things that if there's that persistent kind of pressure underneath the surface, it's just kind of a matter of time, you know, before it yeah. bubbles up, pops out, and we we have to deal with that. Um, but one of the things I was going to tell you is, have you looked into like trailing stops? Yes. Um, and I have used them. Perfect. Previously. Yeah. Um, my, so right before we started, I had like a fairly large loss that was mm -hmm. like, you know, took my breath away, took me a little while to recover from just like that amount of money. And I don't know if it's something I ever will recover from, but I also am a big believer that like, that is sort of part of becoming a trader, I guess. Like I'm, or maybe I'm just telling myself that, but I am trying right now to just build up a series of small wins to just remind myself of like, this is something I can do, right? It, it shook me really beyond what I thought that it would. And I've never had a, I mean, I've, I've done like fairly well up until this point, I've never had anything like that happen. So I just like oddly trying to get all the confidence back and everything. I think, I honestly think we all go through that because I had, I, and I still remember it vividly. I can, it's, I actually have a really shitty memory, one too many concussions. Um, but the day that I had the largest percentage drawdown on my trading portfolio, I remember the whole day. I remember when I woke up, I remember what I ate. I remember that whole entire day. So to your point, I think that those kinds of, um, experiences are very formative and they're actually really important. But to your point, I think every single trader goes through those, but it comes down to, in my opinion, the way that we frame it because you can, we can view it as this bad thing happened. Oh my God, how did I let that happen? Oh my God, I'm so stupid. This is impossible. I'll never figure it out, those kinds of things. Or my preferred style, and it's very kind of tied to just general stoic practices, but I think it really does apply here, is to look at that negative scenario and to find the, the positives, to find what we can learn, to find the good outcomes. So like in your case, for example, whatever that loss was, I can think of two things. One, you're still here. So obviously that loss wasn't so big that it forced you to mortgage your house, right? Like right. that loss is still, you still did a good job overall controlling risk because you're still here, you put on trades, right? So that tells me right. the first thing, that's the first positive thing I would be looking at. The second thing I try to look at is the flaws in the system that led to it and how much of a learning opportunity that is to then optimize going forward. I call it cutting the tails right? We want to cut the tails. We want to cut those big, big drawdowns that don't necessarily have to happen. But I think for a lot of us, we have to go through the drawdown first to then even understand what that means to respect what that means. So I genuinely view even that losing trade that you had at the moment, it's going to be shitty, right? There's no, right. you're never not going to be emotional about a shitty trade. It sucks. But I one hundred percent think you'll get over it. And I 100% think that what you went through is literally part of the formative bedrock that all traders go through. I cannot, I literally don't know a single trader that has a long tenure that hasn't either blown up account or had a large drawdown. I don't know one. So 
honestly, you should get your your patch now. Welcome to the club. That's, <laughs> this, this. Yeah, but, I um the whole time I was doing my podcast was like, well, I've never blown up an account. I'm just like feeling so good about it, and then mm-hmm. it happened, and it was devastating. But I've blown I accounts. Also, <laughs> they're I also all small though. <laughs> Sorry. Talk all the time about like cal cal working up calluses as traders. And um, trying to callous over the emotion of that feeling. But I I think to be a successful trader, you have to callous over a lot of different things. And it's sort of like you plug one hole, another one springs a leak kind of. It's it's a tough, it's a tough process. It, it is. And I think one of the things that it, well, there's two things I think that lend three things that lend well to it. The first one is, successfully detaching ourselves from our trading slash investing capital. That's a whole process unto itself, but I I genuinely think that there is no success without being able to do that. The second thing I think is learning to favor the process over the outcome. And literally anybody successful in any endeavor I know has done that to some degree or another. And I, I just did an interview with Tom Sosnoff uh, yesterday from Tasty Trade, right? I, I've known him for a while now, but Anytime I get to talk to him, it's fascinating. And he was telling me about um, when he was building these different businesses and he never has had an exit strategy. And he told me that when he's talking to founders and they're already talking about their exit strategy, he's like, that worries me because they're too worried about the outcome. They're not worried about the process of creating the best product or doing whatever it is, the process, the business itself. Same exact thing applies to trading. If we can't look at individual trades and say, yeah, okay, I made money there. Yeah, okay, I lost money there. This is how it feeds into the broader process. I need outcomes in order to determine if this thing works and how to optimize it. That's favoring the process. And then I think the third thing um, specifically is detaching the ego from the process as much as we can and limiting both positive and negative emotional reactions. That's another thing I see traders do all the time is they always talk about being emotionless and, you know, whatever. I think that's all stupid because we have emotions. The only way to manage them is to acknowledge they exist. Okay, fine. But I think the bigger problem is when we we only try to manage our negative emotion. But then if we have a winning trade, we're stoked. What a great day. And we right. allow this giant up cycle. Guess what that means? We're just still allowing that negative cycle as well whenever we have the drawdowns. So I find really focusing on the process and disallowing myself to have either side. Whether I had a great trade, great day, it doesn't really matter. It's just another day. Tomorrow could suck. Or if I have a really bad day, tomorrow might be better. But focusing on keeping that even keel has served me really well. But I mean, I think that you're still on the right path, right? Like you put some trades on. I think you're doing a really smart thing by trading small, right? That's huge, Mm -hmm. especially when dipping our toes back in the water. I think that that's massive. And I do think for you, especially if you're trying to use these resting stops, it would make a ton of sense to to do some sort of trailing, trailing stop. I think that would make a ton of sense for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, I think, it, and that's a whole other dialogue, but like getting to an understanding of like that emotional depth is super important because I think without ultimately detaching ourselves from our investable, investing capital, it's always there lurking. Yeah. Also, I just want to say, uh, like, how much worse would it have been, do you think, if you, that trade had worked out? Oh, like, if, like imagine how bad that drawdown would have been if that trade had worked out and you kept doing what you were doing. 
yeah no great really good really good point yeah it's funny because when I first heard people in the trading space talking about emotional regulation and psychology, I always thought that that was bullshit from the people who couldn't trade. I really did. Like I was just, I was overconfident myself and it seemed like this really fuzzy topic that is really stupid. And I've genuinely come to realize that probably the only differentiator between successful traders and non is literally that. It yep. straight up is that because yeah. you have access to the same tools I do, right? And I have the same access as everybody else. So even that in and of itself, I think is really interesting. But yeah, Eric, I think, yeah, go ahead. Before we move on to the next one, do you have any like exercises or tips or suggestions for trying to help like shift that focus to process over the results? Because that's something that I think I've struggled with over the years too. Yeah, I think it's, it comes down to to two things. I think the first thing is clearly defining the process and what you're trying to find out. Mm -hmm. Because like, so say for example, if I'm trading short puts and I wanna know how to trade short puts successfully and I have a giant losing trade, I don't really know how that feeds into the process unless I define it ahead of time. So then when that shitty scenario happens and I get punched in the mouth, I'm not going to like be able to figure it out at that point, right? I'm already down in a, a whole other emotional path. So mm -hmm. I think upfront, what I would think about doing is saying, okay, I want to trade short put successfully. These are the main questions I have. I want to know if it's better to sell 30 DTE or 45 DTE, whatever the fuck it is. And then after you define whatever that process is, and you do have that eventual data point, that's literally what I refer to it as. It's a fucking mm -hmm. data point, win or lose. It's a data point. So once I have that data point, I just see how it fits into the broader process that I'm trying to refine. So, okay, I'm trying to figure out what short put is better to sell. This trade worked really bad. Okay, that was in 34 days to expiration. Do I think there's something wrong with that expiration? Okay, maybe, maybe not. That's the se second question I have. Was there anything I missed around selling that put? Maybe I sold it and I didn't know FOMC meeting was being reported, something like that. So yeah. I literally view each trade genuinely as a data point. And once I understand how each data point fits into the system, then it's much less about winning or losing. I think that's one of the most important things traders to get over sooner rather than later is this, this idea of winning or losing. I, I really think it's so stupid. It's the whole world of like rolling options. I can't stand that. I roll options. But if you talk to an options trader about rolling options, specific, specifically if they're from Theta Gang, they're going to tell you, oh, well, you know, it's not really a loss because I collected more on the new trade than the old trade. It's like, no, fuck you. That is just a broken mind that you literally cannot even accept the fact that this is objectively a losing trade and we opened up a new one, but they can't make that leap because the ego is just so bad at being wrong. So I think adopting the scientific method goes a long way where we want to prove ourselves wrong. We want to find the shortfalls of the strategy because that's exactly how you tighten it up. I genuinely think one of the defining features of a successful trader is literally just being around long enough to see enough to adjust enough. That's it. Mm -hmm. So if you have a bad data point that didn't blow you up, that still feeds into the system. And now maybe if there's a huge drawdown, we have a specific thing we know not to do again. But I think completely reconfiguring the way we think about trading, each trade is making or losing money, 
it's that'll that'll come out in the wash but i think thinking of each trade as a data point that feeds into whatever that system is you're attempting to develop and optimizing it that's worked really well for me and that's all predicated though on the successful detachment from trading capital which that is i mean i I don't know any real hacks for that. I really don't. That part, I think, comes down to time and exposure. It's like the same thing in the military, right? If you first go to boot camp and somebody's screaming at you, your cortisol shoots up, your adrenaline's running. But I tell you what, man, after a few months of that, you don't give yeah. a shit, dude. You're like, whatever, bro. You sound like a fucking frog. You're like, no you just, it doesn't even, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't even matter anymore. So yep. I think the same thing happens with trading because at first I think traders, they do this really nefarious thing where they say, oh, damn, I lost, you know, $4,000. That could have been a down payment on a car, whatever the fuck it is. Like they immediately start looking at this money that they thought they could have had and what they could have done with it. It makes this really awkward relationship with the trading capital. I, I genuinely believe the money that should, that goes into the trading account, I started counting it is gone. It's gone. It's literally gone. It goes into this account and it's fucking gone. And then once you get a little more confident in your skill set, then you can start to say, okay, well, this isn't gone. This is a meaningful part of my retirement or my income. I need to protect at least some amount. And then you kind of create rules, you know, about how you do that, but successful emotional detachment from the trading capital, and then focusing on each trade as a data point that feeds a system but clearly defining what you're trying to solve for with those data points makes them consumable, in my opinion. One of the things that I actually tried doing this past week was writing up the trades as I enter them. I put them into my journal, my trade log, and I write them up as a loss. So I can just go ahead and accept that the outcome has happened. The money is gone. Interesting. Uh, uh, and then the other second thing I was doing is whether it wins or loses, my new celebration has been, yes, another data point. So that's actually really good to hear you say oh, the same oh, thing. Nice. <laughs> yeah. That's actually um, really funny because I think that's right. Yeah. Something that I do and it has now become, I don't even mean to do it, but you know, I'll plan my trade. I have my system. I, it's, I can like follow along the steps, but as soon as I put the trade on, I say like over and over in my head, anything can happen in the market at any time, which has become like an anthem to me because it keeps me from being like, well, it should hold that support or it mm. should, or whatever my thing is. It just really makes me be like, this is anything can happen in the market. I can't, this should this into be a winning trade. Nice. That's, I like that. That's also a really important point is you'll, you'll find that traders that exist long enough we don't we literally don't think of anything as this is going to happen if if i talk to any any of at least my peers that i know have been doing it for a minute we always talk about probabilistic outcomes and right. based on the breadth of evidence if whatever happens this is more probable but the entire purpose of framing of that is acknowledging exactly what it is and i think that you turned a really important corner there blaine because essentially trading is fascinating because you have to completely bear yourself to the market and you have to accept that the market's right and what that means is it's going to move wherever it's going to move you have no control over that so the market's right whether we think something's overvalued undervalued we can have a trade hypothesis but there's way too many traders i think that get around like oh my god this shouldn't be trading here 
because of X, Y, and Z. Guess what, man? That's where consensus is for that to be trading there right then at that point. So yeah. who's right? The millions of yeah. people making a market or you? Right. So totally. Yes. I, yes. Yeah. So I think it's, to your point, I think it's really fair to have ideas on where things might have, you know, a higher probabilistic outcome of going. But yeah, making sure that we understand that whatever we think should happen literally doesn't matter at fucking all. Yep. I had this mentor and I went through a couple of months of like something would happen and there'd be a long wick one way or the other in the S&P and I would mm -hmm. get stopped out and then I would ask him like, what happened? And he'd be like, who the fuck cares? It doesn't matter. Like, it just <laughs> doesn't matter. That happens. Like, right. You got stopped out. You're, you know, now we're moving on. But I would always want like an explanation for every little yeah. thing, you know. And that, I, I think that that's really, really normal, right? Because yeah. we're used to being able to get an answer for why things happen. But exactly to your point, with markets specifically too, they're, they're literally, it's a infinite number of variables that impact. So Just even when we see... Them. When we see these really neat synopsis at the end of the day from CNBC, the market rose today on blank. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. Right. Like whatever blank was might have impacted the market, but there's a lot of other shit that's going on. Sometimes you can define a very clear catalyst, but the vast majority of the time we like succinct, simple answers in general, and that doesn't exist in the actual marketplace. There's just too much stuff going on. It's almost like the market wants to go one way or the other, and it's just going to use those news events as an excuse to do what it wants to do, regardless of what you it, think that it means. It's the, yeah, it's the tail wagging the dog. Like yeah. at the end of the yeah. day, the, the, mar the market is going to do whatever it wants. And I think that's actually why I think it's so important, especially for derivatives traders, is you can learn a lot about probabilistic outcomes in the market looking at derivatives. Whereas a lot of people, they try to look at charts. The tricky part with charts is that they are historic in nature, all of them. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing forward looking about a chart other than pattern recognition. And I'm not, you know, shitting on technical analysis. I think it has a seat at the table, but I think it's important to remember that you're using a historic metric to attempt to predict a future movement. There's a gap there. So yeah. one of the cool things about derivatives markets is that you're getting to see the real time analysis of billions of dollars of research being priced in autonomously. So whether or not I think Apple has support or resistance at whatever price, sure, that could be a data point for me. But I tell you what I'm going to weigh way more heavily is how do the options look? What is the expected move? Where do I see a bunch of open interest sitting? Those kinds of things become very interesting to me because it's not just my hypothesis of whatever I think might happen, but it's actually using derivative products that are pricing in future movement. They're not always right, but I definitely think that they also have a seat at the table when it comes to looking at potential forward movement. Yep. Wait. So we're actually talking about a lot of the stuff that I was going to cover today. So that's actually a really great um, general conversation because we're talking about how we can use options to identify trades and what different tools we can use to identify options trades. And then the second thing I wanna walk us through is again, that process flow. So to give us some talking points right out of the gate, these are literally the, the two scenarios that every single trade for me starts with. This is it, literally. There's either a portfolio need or there's an opportunity. So mm -hmm. any single trade that I identify is gonna come from one of these two things. So portfolio need is very simple. 
I chart out over the course of a year how much I want to make. Then I keep a loose track of how I'm performing. And by loose, I mean I track it every single week. But if I'm behind one week, ahead another week, it comes out in the wash. But what I care about is how am I generally trending? So if I look at my portfolio and I say, okay, I am at my target for the year, I don't have to offer anything. That tells me my portfolio need is essentially no, there isn't one. Sometimes I will look at the portfolio and say, I need to put risk on. I'm not quite at my benchmarks yet for where I should be. I need to take on risk in order so I can create opportunity. Or you can look at the portfolio and say, hey, my beta weighted deltas right now are completely out of whack. I have too much risk in one spot or another spot, and I need to make some sort of adjustment to that risk. That's another scenario. So anyways, what I'm really painting here is there's two things I'm going to look at. The first one is the portfolio. And again, the portfolio is, is pretty simple. That's just a function of if I need to add anything for either risk management, for um, putting more exposure out there, so on and so forth. The second thing is an opportunity. These come in many different shapes and sizes. Sometimes I might look at something and say, I think blank. So I had a recent trade in Raytheon after its earnings trade where, or after its earnings move, I thought it got pummeled. I thought there was an opportunity there. So I structured a trade differently. So the way that these two feed each other is they tell me a lot about what kind of structure I'm immediately thinking about applying. And then it tells me and it helps naturally start narrowing down this giant funnel that we start with in terms of what I want to do, because it should never be this giant ambiguous thing where every single time you look at your portfolio, it's this huge logical hurdle to find what you're trying to put in there. So if we have portfolio need, that sends me down one path. If we have an opportunity, that sends me down another path. We'll talk a little bit more about kind of the process flow and how these feed into it, but I'll take a pause there quickly, see if that generally makes sense to you guys, if that's something that you've seen or done before, or if you have a completely different approach. I just want to clarify, when you say need, like when you need to put risk on, you're not forcing trades in that scenario, correct? You're, you're like, it kind of I mean, gives so like a, it kind of sounds a little bit like that. I just want to make sure that I'm clear on that understanding. No, I mean, it probably is forcing trades. And I know that that's mm. something that short-term traders are always told not to do. The fact of the matter is, is like, there's always a trade for me, literally mm -hmm. always. So if I look at the portfolio and I say, I don't have enough risk, I'm not, you know, on pace for this month or for this quarter, that tells me I'm being too passive. I have mm -hmm. to do something. So if I look at the market and I say, well, there's nothing in zero DTE that looks good. Okay, maybe I look at a week expiration. Maybe I look at a month expiration. Maybe I look at an index ETF. Maybe I look at an individual stock. Maybe I look at volatility. The point being is there's always a trade. Now, if you're a one-trick pony, to your point, Kyle, then forcing a trade is a whole other scenario. Because if you trade set up X, Y, and Z, and set up X, Y, and Z is not there, then there's no need. Your setup isn't there. But that's one of the cool things about at least the way that I trade options is there's never a point where I'm like, there's nothing rational I could put on here. That, it literally never happens. Now, to be very clear, there are absolutely times where holding cash is a position. This happened quite a bit in the last two years for me, actually more than it's happened in the last decade, where mm -hmm. I was sitting essentially full cash, and that's okay. 
But yeah, when I'm talking about portfolio needs specifically with regards to risk, sometimes we can be too passive. And for me, it's just a matter of looking at different things to find the right tool to apply. The other thing to be clear is that portfolio need isn't limited to adding more risk out. It right. could be looking at the correlation of your products. It could be whatever the case is, right? There are other needs that sometimes come up in a portfolio. Like if I open up my portfolio and my notional risk via beta weighted deltas to SPX spy, whatever you want to use. If it's like astronomically high and it's way higher than I think it should be, there's a need. I need to bring down that risk somehow, whether it's offering counter opposing Delta trades, whether it's taking some risk off, whatever the case is. But okay, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. The whole idea of looking at the portfolio is seeing where are we at right now? How does this stack against where I need to trend for the year and then making adjustments off of that? And then, like I said, for the opportunity, that's for individual things that pop up. Longtime fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as Sue Pullen. And I'm pleased to announce that she's back fresh off a rebrand and ready to help as Sue Mackey. Sue is a certified mortgage advisor at Fairway Independent Mortgage, an equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs. She has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners. Whether it's purchasing, refinancing, or even a reverse mortgage, Sue will help. Sue's licensed in 36 states now, so reach out and let Sue Mackey it happen for you. The best way to reach her is just give her a call at 520-977-7904 or in an email, spullen at fairwaymc.com. Fairway Independent Mortgage has an MLS number of 2289. Sue Mackey has an MLS number of 206048. That email again, spullen at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. Shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Okay, so let's talk about a general process flow. This is essentially just about everything that goes into the way that I place a trade. And it's not that crazy. So it always starts with a portfolio review, even if it's an opportunity-based trade. The reason for this is let's say, again, I see a giant opportunity in Apple and I wanna be bullish Apple because I think Apple's gonna go up. But then I take a look at the portfolio and I have a bunch of risk in T triple Q's, Amazon, Microsoft, Meta. Guess what? That opportunity mm -hmm. doesn't fit the current portfolio. So no matter what, whether it's a portfolio needs based trade or an opportunity based trade, portfolio review always comes first. It's got to fit whatever it is. Then I'm looking at whether I want to trade a cover strangle or ratio diagonal, whatever structure starts to make sense. And this is where I want to spend a few minutes working through with you guys on how to determine structure, because I don't think that this has to be a super complex topic either. Because for me, when I think about different options trades, there's essentially like three structures I deploy. The first one is the covered strangle. The second one is ratio diagonals. And then the third one is short straddles or strangles. That's mostly it. That's not all I do, but that's the vast majority of what I do. 
And the reason why I use those three structures is because they carry me through every single market condition, every single volatility condition. Exactly why I pick those. So this goes all the way back to some of our first lessons when I was talking to you guys about outlining different strategies, both for bullish, bearish, sideways markets, both for expanding, declining, and sideways volatility regimes. This is exactly why. Because as we look at the portfolio, or if we look at the opportunity, we need to be able to succinctly determine what structure makes sense. That's it. So for example, I have a trade on um, right now that I just established in volatility. And this is something that I'll be building over time. But if we pull up the VIX, the reason why I'm establishing this trade in volatility, it's via a ratio called diagonal, it means I'm bullish. And the reason why I'm bullish is because we started hitting these kind of sub 13 levels, which are very interesting to me with volatility. Volatility is a mean reverting asset. The point being is I see, based on my breadth of experience, an opportunity here. So this started as an opportunity trade. When I said, okay, I think VIX is really low here. What can I do? I was like, I wanna be long VIX. I'm gonna be long volatility. First question, does that fit the portfolio? Yes, it does. In general, my general market hypothesis is kind of right now slightly uptrending, maybe sideways, but definitely I see downward pressure as we move into the rest of the year. Interestingly enough, when rates start to get cut, I think that can bode not great for the market. I think there'll be an initial positive reaction, but I think after that it can get pretty ugly. So anyways, yeah. with that as the general backdrop for the way I'm thinking about this, this does fit into the portfolio. Cool. If I'm bullish VIX, what choices do I have to trade it? Well, I can trade short puts or I can trade ratio call diagonals. Those are my two bullish strategies realistically. And they're different. Short puts, it is a defined profit trade, undefined risk. Ratio call diagonal is the inverse. They behave differently. So I look at my toolkit and I find what fits this scenario. For me, it's a ratio called diagonal. And then I go through the application of that strategy. And this is when I talk about having the strategy outlines where we determine all of these different specific details that generally apply to that specific structure, then strategy. And then we optimize it for whatever the individual circumstances. So in this case, just briefly, when we look at the VIX again, I was trading ratio called diagonal. I know right out of the gate that tells me I'm going to be trading a long in the money option. It's going to be at least 90 days out, if not longer. How do I determine which one? That's where the human element comes in. That's when I look at the individual product and say, well, based on the way I think volatility goes, I think volatility can remain suppressed for long periods of time. So I don't want to do the 90 day volatile or the 90 day long. I want more time. So I went out as far as I could. That's literally the decision tree I run down. And this is why I think outlining your strategies is so important. Because if I know right out of the gate that for the long part of that trade, it's 90 to however long I can get out, it's defined right out of the gate. I don't have to spend any time thinking about it because I've already studied it. If you don't have those metrics, that's okay. Those are some of the first things I think options traders need to study to identify what makes sense for each structure that you're looking to trade. Mm -hmm. You're not gonna know up front, but it starts with taking a guess, creating a data sample around it, and then optimizing it. And I have some videos out there on creating an option strategy, that kind of stuff, but I always just back test. You can forward test if you're so inclined via some sort of Monte Carlo simulations, whatever, and then paper trade to create your sample. 
But the idea is to get as many data points as you can to say, okay, if I'm selling that put from the original example, do I want to be 25 days to expiration or 45? I'm going to take a guess. I'm going to say 30. Maybe I'll test all different variations of that. But once you run it through that cycle, you should have a pretty good answer. So that is the iterative process of developing strategy and then figuring out what you want to apply where. All right. You guys feel we, I like it. It's basically plan for as much as you can up front so you don't have to think about it when it comes to time to make the decisions. If you exactly. have, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that's exactly right. And it gives you something to test. It gives mm -hmm. you different ideas to test. So for Blaine's specific circumstance here, one of the things I would want to test for her is wherever that stop sits, what's the optimal stop? And there are different ways we can come up with that because the further we move the stop in our favor, the lower our win rate is going to be probably, but the yep. bigger the average win is going to be. So yep. that just becomes a mathematical problem. And the way that I would be doing that if I were in Blaine's shoes is I would set up the stop however I felt most comfortable right out of the gate. But at the same time, I would put on paper stops. I would put on all different variations in Excel and see when it would have been hit if it wouldn't have been hit and then what the resulting P&L for that strategy is and just do that. It's a really slick way to create a pretty expansive data set using real live market data, real live decision making, and then to see how it would perform. But the idea here is it's a very iterative process that starts with some assumptions and then we go from there. The most important part though, when we talk about any sort of like strategy application is risk first. You gotta control risk first. That's the hands yeah. down most important thing here. You can't trade no money. But once risk is managed, then the rest of it's kind of fun. You get to see what works the best. And this is why I think organized traders start to outperform disorganized traders because it's not a guessing game. It shouldn't be a guessing game. There's a correct answer. It's just whether or not we're going to put in the work to get to the correct answer. Yeah, I've been I've been struggling with that. So I'm glad we hit on that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Love it. Okay, cool. So let's jump over to the exercise quickly. And then I think the exercise is relatively straightforward. We don't have to go super far in depth, but I would love for either of you to walk me through a trade hypothesis, one that you have, one that you want to create now together, whatever, and then just walk me through exactly how we structure the trade. I do have one, actually. I have uh, three to choose from. I'll give you the best one or the one I like the best. Well, I guess That's there's two of them in there. So either Pepsi or CMC. I have a short bias for both of those. Okay. So which one do you want to look at? Uh, let's look at Pepsi. Pepsi. Fuck Pepsi. Do you like Pepsi or Coke more? Oh, this cup has never had a drop of Coke in it. It is only Pepsi okay. that goes into it. Oh, no. <laughs> yep. Blaine, Blaine, talk I to me. It, Are you I, I live in Atlanta. No. Oh, I don't know what that means. Yeah, that means she's a Coke oh, girl. Oh, it's Coke's headquartered here. Yeah. We're all Coke okay, all got the it. time. Yeah. Wasn't there like share, share wine or shared whatever the fuck? Isn't that? Sheer wine. Yeah. Is that, isn't that down south somewhere? It's in North Carolina. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Got and it. it's so fantastic. Then, I love Cheerwine. I think <laughs> I, I, I've had it once before, but anyways, it's just good to know that Blaine, you and I are the same people and Kyle is obviously fucked up like a football bat, which is fine. It's to be expected. He's Navy, right? Like I'm the, Navy, I'm the outlier. <laughs> yeah. Navy guys do really weird shit. So mm -hmm. this is just kind of on par. So anyways, I love the idea of fading Pepsi. 
So let's, because it's a terrible <laughs> drink. So let's talk about, let's talk about this. So first and foremost, how did you determine Pepsi? Did you look at a portfolio and say, I need risk? Did you come across Pepsi in a scan and say, this looks interesting? Which one uh, I was using the, the FinViz screener. I really like that because you can punch in some different parameters, look for, you can even punch in some different technical analysis stuff on there. Like I like to look at stocks. I like to punch them in there and look for things. Sure. Um, so, uh, yeah. More, so yeah. then to me, that sounds like you looked it's, at your portfolio and you said, I need to put something on or I want to put something on. I want to put. No, this on. was more, I was just looking for opportunities. Uh, I but just had I'm some time this afternoon and it was not a portfolio need i wouldn't say it was just uh i would say this falls under opportunity okay and the reason why i differentiate between those because I, I still probably would argue to you that there's still some sort of slight portfolio need because for example if my portfolio is invested there mm -hmm. i don't look like there's nothing for me to look for um but to your point sometimes you can just have a casual process and come across them the reason why i would just think about the differentiation between those is at least for me, the strategy set that I deploy depends a lot on whether it's a speculative opportunistic trade or like a core position for a portfolio need. So for you, it well, sounds being, like this is if I'm being completely honest, this is more of a for collecting data anyway. So I would actually prefer to put both the trades on um, one being a portfolio with the portfolio in mind, knowing that I need to put risk on. I'd like to look at it from that aspect and I'd like to track it as the opportunity type trade, too. And I would track them both. I'm just trying to collect data at this point. Yeah, makes total sense. And I think for me, when I look at portfolio risk, there's a handful of things that I use for portfolio risk. It's going to mm -hmm. be some sort of index ETF, typically the coverage strangle of some sort, volatility maybe. Otherwise, almost all of it's going to be in my speculative bucket. And the reason why that matters is because those two allocations of the same portfolio have very different rules and they have very different buckets of money that they can pull from. In this case, it sounds like we have an opportunistic trade. You were doing some scans. You came across something that looked interesting. For my mind, that tells me this is a speculative trade. Yep. And there are certain rules that will bleed out as we talk about this, as we kind of discuss this as a speculative trade. So we decide Pepsi. Now, the basis behind all of this is that technical analysis is conducted, fundamental analysis conducted, whatever your analysis process is conducted. Yep. We're going to skip that for time's sake. And you're just going to tell me what the outcome of your analysis was. In this case, it sounds like you want to fade it. You want to trade it to the downside. Yes. Got it. Okay. So now we know we want to fade Pepsi. What's mm -hmm. next? Next, we got to figure out. Mm, I don't know. Hang on. Wait a minute. Let's go back here and see. So well, first we have to figure reference. out our structure then, right? Or we got to look at our portfolio Bingo. first and... Yeah. That's exactly it. So this is under the assumption that we already looked at the portfolio. Okay. So we decide that we want to put this on in the portfolio. It generally fits. This opportunity fits. It's an opportunistic trade. So now we have to figure out the structure. So what structure floats your boat? I was leaning towards the ratio diagonals, uh, ratio put diagonals. Um, ratio put diagonals. Okay. I didn't like the so, idea of trying to sell covered calls or sell calls, I mean, or just going single puts, uh, just going single directional. I think I was, okay. I, I wanted to explore the ratio call uh, puts anyway, because it's something that I've been trying to dig more into. Cool. Yeah. I think from a technical standpoint, I think trading the ratio put diagonal here is completely fine. Again, I don't want to bog too much down in the analysis. Mm -hmm. So what I need to know now, though, is what 
time frame. So we know what structure we're going to trade. The next question that comes across my mind is what time frame? And this can be based on a few things. One, it could be the time frame for the opportunity, i.e., an earnings trade. That tells me the time frame right out of the gate. However, for this kind of trade where we're just short, I typically would want to hypothesize what I think might happen in here and what mm -hmm. time frame I think that might happen in. The reason why this is important is because it keeps us honest with ourselves. If, for example, we say, okay, over the next three months, I think Pepsi is going to contract whatever. It doesn't matter. You just pick whatever. But if in three months it hasn't done it yet, then you have a serious question to ask yourself at the end of it. Do I continue this trade? Do I get out of this trade? Mm -hmm. I thought it was going to happen in this amount of time. Obviously, I have new information now. But unless this new information drastically changes what I thought should have happened, then I'm wrong. It didn't do what I thought it was going to do in the amount of time I thought it was going to. So talk to me about the time frame that you want to trade Pepsi in. The time frame was going to be much longer than what I typically look for. I was actually thinking of something more along the lines of like a three to six month type trade. Okay. And for the move, for the bearish move that you think is a higher probabilistic outcome than the bullish move, mm -hmm. what's the time frame that you think that that would occur in? Um, if I'm just guessing, I would say probably within the next month or two. Okay. I would, and that's fine to guess, obviously, but the idea is when we're trading options, they have an expiration. Mm -hmm. So whatever we're trading, our thesis has a time frame to play out in. Right. That should always be part of our analysis. So in, to your point, let's just say we think it's going to be a two or three month thesis. For me, if I'm trading the ratio put diagonal and I know that the thesis of the move for me is three months, I'm probably going to want to at least double the duration for the long option, at least, mm -hmm. yep. if not a little bit longer than that. So what expiration do you think we want to do for the long, the long put? Well, let's see if we're in September now, nine, three, probably March is where we should be starting to look. And looks like we have to pick April. See, yep. So I see April. And I think that falls directly in line with where I typically yep. would expect to land something between 180 plus days. Mm -hmm. And again, that's like the vast majority of these for me. So that makes sense to me. So now what do we do next? We've looked at the portfolio. We've under, we understood the fit. We're now understanding what time frame we want to trade in. And the reason why the time frame matters is because the next thing is not actually getting too far into deltas and whatnot. It's understanding cost mm -hmm. because we have to figure out how much we're going to give this trade. What's the initial outlay going to be? And then what are the scaling protocols? Because mm -hmm. now that becomes part of our decision cycle, the cost. So for an opportunity trade like this, what's the allocation? How much money would you give this trade? Um, how much would I be willing to risk of it or how much would I be willing to uh, uh, appropriate, I guess, is the question. Like, I would probably have stops. I wouldn't want the whole thing to go to zero. Okay. I'd probably cut it before that happened, but I think I'd be willing okay. to risk maybe, say, 2K. Start with that. Okay. So it's, and I typically would use a percentage, right, of the percentage of the account. So yeah. for me, so, for speculative trades, they have to be 10% or less. 10% mm -hmm. would be on the high side, but 10% or less. 
So we could just say, okay, this is depending on your conviction or the rest of your portfolio utilization. In this case, I'm going to give it $2,000, which is whatever percent. Cool. So now we have a couple questions. If this is a $2,000 trade, what is the initial outlay first and foremost? The reason why that initial outlay matters so much is because if we look at the cost of doing a ratio put diagonal in something like this, and we go, yeah. let's say even remotely in the money, we're essentially priced out right out of the gate. So if we're yeah. willing to risk $2,000, we can't even afford it. Now, there's a difference here though, and this is why the difference between capital at risk is different from your allocation. Because you might say, okay, I'm willing to risk $2,000. Does that mean that you can only buy $2,000 of this? Maybe, maybe not. Mm -hmm. For me, I would look at it and say, where is something that's super far in the money? I like these 195s, for example. Okay, fine. These are trading for, what is it, 1750 Or I'm sorry, 1630 Cool. So technically that falls within your risk profile right out of the gate. But I would want to size this up a little bit more personally, again, depending right. on your risk tolerance. So if we go to the analyze trade tab, we could see where do we lose $2,000 on this trade. In this one, obviously it's essentially if it went to zero. So let's say instead, let's repaint the scenario. Let's say we give this trade five or $6,000 total capital and our initial outlay for that five or $6,000 of total capital is gonna be predicated on our conviction. If I think that the move is more likely to happen sooner rather than later, I will use more upfront and then scale in less. If it's the inverse, I'm gonna nibble upfront, scale in later. This is all predetermined stuff for me. So my minimum initial outlay would be 20%. My maximum would be 80%. And again, that's just based on studying this and figuring out what ranges make sense. So in this case, I would pick something that aligns based on my conviction. If my conviction is low for this move, I would be closer to the bottom end. If my conviction is high, I would be closer to the upper end. So what's your conviction here? Uh, it's, it's pretty high. Okay. Not, so not 80% high, but I'd probably put it somewhere around the 60%. Okay. So for something like that, if we're going to give the trade, let's call it $6,000, I think I would be fine risking something like 2,500 bucks in terms of risk. So mm -hmm. then we can figure out what size we can add while achieving that risk. So then if we put on two of them, it would cost us about three grand utilization. And that two grand loss would happen at 187.64 right out of the gate. So we could see 187.64. What do I think the probability is that we get to 187.64? That's up here. I think mm -hmm. it could get there. The probability of it peaking up above that may be high, maybe not. I don't like to guess these kinds of things. I'm just going to look at the derivatives to tell me. So what's the probability that we get to 187.64 over the next two months, just to give us a time frame to start with? Well, mm -hmm. if I go to 187.64, somewhere in here, it's about a 75% chance that it stays below it in terms of it being out of the money. But the probability of a touch is higher. So if we look mm -hmm. at the probability of us getting to 187.64, again, let's call it in 60 days here, just because it's convenient. 187.64, it's about a 50% chance. So this tells you right out of the gate that there's probabilistically about a 50% chance that you'll get stopped out of this using a one standard deviation. Mm -hmm. That's when you get to overlay your technical analysis.
Do I think that that's a probable outcome based on your TA? That's up to you. But to me, that's exactly how I would think about sizing this kind of position. Now for me, literally in Excel, I have all of my different strategies for the individual positions on individual tabs, and they all feed into an aggregate tab. In that aggregate tab, I have the total account value, what's partitioned to different trades. So I can immediately see what size of my account I should be putting on each one of my speculative trades, because it shouldn't be random. If you have some that you do 12%, some that you do 2%, it's a random crapshoot that you can't really optimize because then you might lose too much on the 12%, not making up on the 2%. But what you've just done so far is basically follow a pretty simple process flow to figure out how we should start structuring that. So now we know in this trade, we would put on two of these to start, and mm -hmm. then you have the ability to scale in the rest of the capital, again, based on whatever your strategy says. And then for the ratio put diagonal, we would then sell puts further in. I already know for me, that's gonna be within 30 days. Typically, seven to 14 days, I'm sorry, seven to 21 days, somewhere in there. So given that, again, for the strategy as I've defined it, where do we wanna go for the short options? Do we wanna be closer to seven? Do we wanna be closer to 21? What's your disposition? How do you pick? Uh, I typically like to trade the monthlies when I have a choice. I don't typically like messing around with the weeklies because there's a lot less liquidity. Uh, my initial, when I was thinking this through before the recording, I was thinking of the 30 day October 20 was the one that I was looking at, but it sounds like you would be looking more for maybe the six or the 13. hundred percent. And the reason is the same. Typically, if you're selling options, gamma, you're fighting gamma. Mm -hmm. You don't want to get ran over by gamma, but because this is a covered position, because we have the long options, we're not afraid of gamma. So in this case, we actually want to maximize theta decay. Theta per day matters to us the absolute most, because that's how you can cycle on these short options as much as humanly possible. So the way that I determine how far out I go, the first thing I'm going to look for is a catalyst. Is their earnings coming up? Okay, yep. so it's on the there 10th. Yep. Now, now, I have, now I have a choice. Do I want to be able to get one whole cycle in before earnings and then trade through earnings? Or am I trying to get out of this trade before earnings? If we're trading the ratio put diagonal, I imagine we're expecting to hold through earnings. Otherwise, yep. this is, right, we're kind of not going to put this position on yet. Right. So granting that we're okay to hold it through earnings, I personally think that going out to the 10th is a little bit long. So I would actually try to go to the sixth here, get mm -hmm. an entire cycle in before earnings, then capture the earnings volatility, and then put on another trade post earnings. What I'm trying to do is cycle through these short calls. Mm -hmm. So then I already know where I'm going. And then in terms of the strike, that's going to be all calculated via the strategy. This is when we use the critical strike selection on the first one for short parlance. You could just use the at the money slightly in the money, whichever one you want. We don't want any upside potential. So I already know I'm going to trade this at a ratio. Mm -hmm. So if I think about the amount of time it would take me to structure this entire trade, once I understand that I want to short Pepsi, it's literally less than five minutes. Yeah. Because every single one of these decisions is not unique into itself. I'm selecting out of predetermined ranges that I've built over time. So this is literally, quite literally, the process of creating a trade hypothesis and then form fitting an option structure that you created a strategy around to trade it. That's it. We just mm -hmm. did it.
Love it. All right. So the homework for you guys, before we get into any questions quickly, is I want you guys to structure a $100,000 portfolio and to paper trade it until we talk again, and then we'll review it together. So essentially what we just did with that one individual trade, we're not necessarily gonna go into that depth for all of your trades, but I wanna get a sense for how you use the $100,000. How do we partition it out? Mm -hmm. What strategies get how much money? How do we determine that? How do we determine the details of the strategy that we're using? And again, if you have a smaller toolkit that you tend to use, then that answers it for you. But one of the reasons why I like using $100,000 for these is because for a lot of people, it's more than what they currently have. So it gives them at least some ideas on how to trade bigger sums of money. But then the other thing is it's very scalable. So instead of $100,000, you could divide by 10. Now you have a $10,000 account and you just divide everything by 10, right? Or if you yep. have a million dollar account, it's the same exact thing. So it's just a very scalable metric. So that's what I want you guys to do for our next call. I want you to essentially build a $100,000 portfolio and then paper trade it. And that's it. I, I love that. Uh, Blaine, if you don't have any questions, I do have some listener questions that I forgot to get to that I think we should probably touch on before we wrap up for the for the evening. Mm -hmm. Blaine, do you have anything? No, I'm good. Okay. Uh, let's see. The first one then here is from Mark Z. Um, he was asking about the ratio call Mark diagonal. Zuckerberg, what's he doing in here? <laughs> Mark with the K, uh, C, not with a K. Oh, I thought you said Z. Z is way better, to be honest. It is. Okay. It is Z, yeah. Uh, he said the ratio call diagonal is something he's looked at a lot lately, but it is a beast he's not conceptually clear about. If I am bullish, why not just trade a long, deep in the money, say, call? Or is it primarily like a cover call via diagonal for leverage? And it's, I think uh, It's the latter, yeah. That's, that's the whole point of trading a ratio call or put diagonal versus a covered call or a covered put is the very first thing is for leverage, right? So in that Pepsi trade, for example, Pepsi was trading at uh, 178.38. So in order for you to trade even a one lot, you would have to short $17,838 times two to get to the two lot that we were looking at for your ratio put diagonal. So the first thing is leverage, just way more efficient. The second thing is instead of just doing the single options is you subsidize one, theta decay because there is theta decay we go super far in the money far out in time because that all decreases our daily theta decay but there's still theta decay and the second thing is again we're not afraid of gamma because we're collecting theta against the covered position do so you get to take advantage of volatility risk premiums completely free right because your base position is the base position but then you're just amplifying it with these short-term short positions against it. And again, it reduces trade volatility. It allows you to benefit, even if it doesn't go in your direction, which is really important. The reason I have a video coming out soon on that uh, Raytheon ratio call diagonal that I was telling you guys, and I purposely did the video on that trade because it didn't fucking work. I thought Raytheon should rebound in X amount of time based on the news that I saw, and it didn't fucking happen. So I still made money on the trade though because I was trading a ratio called diagonal. So I had short calls cycling while I was in this trade, while it wasn't working how I wanted it to, after I got to the duration that I thought it should move in, that it didn't move in, it's time to get the fuck out. I was wrong, but I still got out of a profit. So one of the reasons why I like to do this is because I might think something could go in a direction. It might not go in that fucking direction. 
So I acknowledge the fact that like we were talking about at the beginning of the call, the market's going to do whatever the market's going to do. And I have no say over it, but I do get to scale things based on my conviction. So if I'm really, really convicted in something, I'm going to sell a lighter ratio so that I can benefit from the base position more, whether it's long call, long put. If it's something that I think there's a lot of volatility and I can cycle on that while I have a directional assumption, maybe I have more shorts against the long. But the idea is it's all a sliding scale. And that's why I like these strategies so much is because they can fit all of these nuanced scenarios using one single strategy. All right, good stuff. I think that answers that fully. Uh, the last one I have here is from Shrajay. Shrajay. He's one of mine. Yeah. Ah, gotcha. Okay. Uh, he wants to know what delta range would be appropriate for the wings on the iron fly. And he also said he enjoyed our discussions. Is Thanks, the, Jay. Do, can you re remind me, is this for zero DTE options or what was this for? It didn't say. This was a comment on the last video that we did. Got it. Um, well, I think anyways, it, it, it definitely depends slightly on the time frame that you're trading them in, but I, regardless, I think in general for the wings, it comes down to your risk tolerance. Like that, that's all it is. That's the whole point of buying the wings is to manage the risk. Mm -hmm. So the way that I think about it is the less your risk tolerance is the higher the Delta, the closer the Delta is going to be to wherever the, at the money is right. That we're selling the straddle at but you're going to give up more money. So it really comes down to how much of the risk you're willing to stomach. And that all comes down to how you build out the strategy, what the expectancy looks like. So for me, the short answer is I don't want the wings to be super close. I want the base position to be the short straddle. I'm only adding the wings to manage risk. So depending on your portfolio size, you'll have to model out the size of the wings, what the max risk is, if it hits that, and does it make sense for your portfolio? Good stuff, Eric. Thanks for, uh, thanks for, for answering those. Um, we have anything yeah. else we need to cover here then before we wrap things up? All right. I think, so. well, I think that's going to do it then. Uh, thank you to everybody for stuck around to the end, especially thanks to Blaine and Eric for, for uh, leading these discussions and offering some great uh, tips and ideas for how to move forward. Uh, we'll be back soon with another installment. But uh, if you got something useful out of this series, tell your friends, hit that like button, or maybe even leave a comment. Uh, if you didn't, uh, still leave us a comment. Tell us how shit we are. Like Oscar Wilde says, uh, the only thing love, the only thing in life worse than being talked about is not being talked about. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it. Two Bulls in a China Shop is an entertainment program, and all thoughts and opinions expressed in the show belong to the hosts and not of any company. They are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security or investment product. It is only intended to provide entertainment about stocks and the financial industry of trading. If you make trades based on what you hear in this show, you assume all risks for those trades.